Welcome to the Unfair Advantage podcast, where we will explore the unique experiences, skills, and abilities high performers bring to bear in their field. In each episode, we will unpack the guest's expertise and insights to help all of us develop our own unfair advantage. Welcome back to the Unfair Advantage podcast. I am delighted to be joined today by Chris Shamba Brook. Chris, how are you? Yeah, very good, Alex. Very good indeed. Great to be here. Looking forward to the conversation. Likewise, could you start off by just telling us a little bit more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, so uh, currently what I do is I'm a director of a company called Planet K2, and we take, uh, since 2003, we've taken the principles of performance psychology and high-performance approaches to uh, performance into the business world. So having worked originally, uh, I qualified as a sports psychologist in 1995. I got a role with British rowing team in 1997, and I did five and a half Olympic cycles with the British rowing team as well as some other sort of sport work along there. So, so but that, the, the contemporary business work, I had a long period where I was overlapping doing both work in the Olympic and professional sport environment and in the commercial world uh, and having a lot of fun seeing how those two worlds are very different and very similar and how learning can transfer both ways between them. Um, so I guess, you know, I'm an experienced practitioner who's got a psychology background who used to be certified but isn't anymore and you know uh, I've dabbled in a lot of different stuff over the years to try and bring alive what I've learned and sort of been fascinated by with different audiences so um, whether it's the performance room that we have which kind of builds content or believeperform.com that my colleague Adam set up where we try and get mental health and sports psych information into the kind of out into the public um, or working directly with corporates there's just you know how can we bring alive an understanding of psychology that helps people become individually or collectively better versions of themselves in their chosen performance environment? I love that. I think it's an incredible mission. And I personally am grateful for the work you guys have done. It's helped me and is a great resource bank. I would love to start with the similarities and differences between athletics and the corporate space. What do you find are the common challenges or issues people are coming to you for help with? What are the differences? And maybe just talk to us a little bit about what that looks like. Yeah, so I guess the fascinating thing for me over the years has been in the corporate space, going in as someone with a foundation in the world of sport, you end up doing something totally different because when you're in the commercial space, you end up being given time uh, to actually sort of work through, you know, a whole couple of days or a series of over time time is put aside where people stop working and they invest in the development that is going to be taking place. Um, whereas in the world of sport, when you're involved in that high level sport, there's so many support services that are available. There's a full training program all the time, as well as a competition schedule. It's actually, it was actually always really hard to get time to do formal development work you were always having to kind of you know de deliver in the thick of it or sort of you know find your time or make a really strong case for something different on the training program so that just just the different experience of, of how you can make a uh, a contribution which is, is different um, but obviously the commercial world they're on the field of play pretty much all the time in the sporting world particularly the olympic environment you're 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 training far more than you compete uh, just, just the different ratios of time spent investing in development versus delivering and competing are, are, are wildly different. But they are they are similar in as much as there's, you know, a very small margin between success and failure 
there's a high cost of failure, whatever you want to define that as, but you know, it's normally an objective marker. Um, uh, there's all, you're always being asked to do more with less, the resources may reduce, but you're being asked to be creative and innovative and set new standards. So, you know, so there's a lot of similarities in the, them being laboratories for the development of human performance, but actually the investment in development time and competitive time are, are wildly different, um, but populated by incredibly ambitious people um, who are far too possibly obsessed with what they're doing that might be healthy. <laughs> well, maybe it's that har harmonious passion versus the, the other option. I'd love real quick, and then I want to get into some of the Olympic experience and your foundational principles. Like, What are the you know, challenges or the presenting concerns that you find overlap most between the corporate space or the non-athlete space and the athlete space? And, you know, is this things like confidence or motivation or, or what is it that, yeah. that you're it's, finding it's that? Definitely, it's definitely, so um, it may be a self-fulfilling thing for me, but definitely confidence is the topic that I think is most needed in all of those environments because you typically have incredibly ambitious people who have a very high track record but a very healthy disregard for their level of competence so they end up in this strange space of brilliant competence but self-doubt um, and so the confidence component and taking that systematically into those environments individually and collectively is the one that I think is probably the biggest overlap so I think it's a bit of a human condition you know I, I, I do believe that from a confidence perspective I always talk about you know if if endurance training for a marathon runner is their bread and butter, confidence training is the bread and butter psychologically for everyone. But we don't seem to invest in it proactively. We tend to wait for it to go missing before we think we should do something about it, um, which is the contrast, which is why I think it's one of those, I have to show that I'm confident rather than I should anticipate that I'm never going to be finished in my pursuit of being the fully confident performer I might want to be. So I'll just keep investing in it rather than this kind of remedial approach, which we typically take. Yeah, I wish we could get more people invested in that proactive approach. I think it would save a lot of time and energy and grief and disappointment and several other things that people try to avoid. So, so I want to hear about the Olympic experience because it's pretty rare to have someone who's gone through five cycles with one program. I would love to know, like, how did the program develop in your time there and I'm going to ask you to do the impossible, but maybe give us like the one to five most critical lessons from your time working in British rowing. Yeah, sure. So, so I was working part time. So it was usually around about 60 days per year in a full time program. So I was I, I was certainly, you know, looking to maximize the value of a relatively short amount of time in a time poor sport. Endurance sports, you know, the scoop, but, you know, they they, they, they are doing the physical work a huge amount of the time. Um, so uh, the, the program evolved over time through uh, different, different iterations of trying to get similar messages across of moving into a proactive approach to sports psychology. We're looking to build endurance capacity, technical excellence, so let's seek to build psychological sort of, you know, fitness for purpose as well. So there's, there was an increasing emphasis on that approach of, will we if if the medals were being handed out for psychological performance only where would we finish on the podium let's get let's get into that space um there was always a blend because of the way that the seasons worked with individually 
the athletes were in small boats um, early in the season training and developing. Then they'd have a series of trials for selection and then they'd make the team. So there was a bit of a generic base to the season psychologically as well and them moving into supporting crews. And so you had a nice blend between individual and collective psychology once units were formed and they were able to kind of uh, iterate their development through a series of uh, competitions which would lead up to the world championships or the olympics so there was a very pragmatic approach to uh, growing through training and competition psychologically and bringing in competitive reviewing and learning in order to kind of keep keep that growth going um, and, I, and i think in time the program iterated where i was looking to create over time much more a picture of what is our approach in british rowing to the core psychological principles that we should all be working on in the same way that the coaches would have a technical blueprint that was the starting point that which you you move the boat by moving in this way so psychologically these are the foundation principles that whether you're the coach the athlete alone or in a crew here's some of those things that if we can work on those collectively and uplift them they'll probably serve us well and we can then individualize as we need to beyond that as well um so that's kind of the, the iteration in terms of the, the, the program, uh, I've been iterated as well in terms of, you know, started in 1997, finished in 2019, technology was different, the ability to, you know, ev evidently infographics are the way forward. So if you can have a nice thing with words and pictures on it, it's a consumable thing of content, which had been different from how I was doing stuff to begin with. So trying to message in different ways as well. Um, but I, th I think the the top lesson, if I go with a top lesson, I, I, I learned over time the paradox of competitive sport at that level and, and never looking for single solutions because knowing two things could be true at the same time. You needed to be the best, the best prepared and planned and forensically ready team or individual in the world, as well as being incredibly ready to rip it up and go with whatever you're faced with. You needed to be incredibly confident, but humble at the same time. You needed to be um, incredibly rigorous in your reviewing, um, as well as open to doing new ways of reviewing as you went. So, so this this paradox of you know there are all there is no good or bad. They're just different, and how do we get the blend between them? I think I saw athletes who were quite contrasting in their psychologies, but were able to make them work. So a high level worrier, as well as a super optimist, I saw them both be successful. So how did that work? Well, there's a paradox there that we can both be super optimistic and highly sort of healthily paranoid and the blend of the two can be even more powerful. So that openness to paradox for me was kind of the biggest lesson. Um, and and the other, the, I think the other one that probably worked consistently with with greater confidence for me was helping people find their version of psychology not trying to mimic someone else's um, and, and in a program that's very successful over time the desire is to say well what did they do to get their gold we'll just copy them well what they did was they found their own way so you need to copy on finding your own way rather than copying their way and that was the bit that I think I was more and more confident to help people celebrate their personality and unlock it rather than here's key characteristics that every athlete should have um because that just felt to me sort of like it didn't match the data that i was seeing on the ground
there are so many pearls of wisdom in there. I mean, I love the idea of would we be on the podium for our psychological preparation? I love the idea of, you know, key principles and I want to double down on that. And, and I also like to hear this managing paradox and it kind of like sounds like the hallmark of wisdom. I forget whose quote that was, right? But the hallmark of wisdom is that you can hold two competing ideas in mind at the same time. Um, and I think, you know, what really resonates for me is this idea that you've taken these really high level performers and rather than trying to fit them into a neat mold or a preconceived idea of what it means to be a high performer, you're allowing people to just express high performance in their own way. And it becomes this highly individualized, personalized way of thinking about it. But especially in professional sport, I imagine it's no different than what you're talking about. There is a, almost like a compulsion to copy whoever is at the top right now. And then of course that actually limits what's possible um i'd love, love to hear your thoughts on that before we jump yeah, into the principles yeah, that's why i regularly like being on linkedin and when someone says you know here's a list of 21 things that great ceos do before five o'clock in the morning they just kind of go why do i want to do that that's what that ceo does you know i i, I don't want to get up that time of day to be honest <laughs> i've got better things to do sleeping um so yeah you know and to, towards the end you know I, I was definitely saying because we've got this how do we want to do psychology I did have principles of right well you know everyone needs to be really good at their version of emotional and thought control so we need that ability I don't know what your thoughts and emotions are that will go into that but can you demonstrate you can do that thing everyone it will be helpful if you understand that you have a robust confidence how we create that robust confidence for you is where we individualize the ability to focus on the right thing at the right time and be in the moment is an incredibly useful skill to do that. But actually, depending upon your personality, there may be different ways in which you need to have that conversation with yourself. The, you know, the ability. So I, I talk a lot about the 100% mentality. On any given day, you're unlikely to be the ideal version of yourself. But if you can get 100% out of the version that you are on any given day, that's a great ability to have. How you do that, we'll work that out. So that those kind of principles are headline concepts, but they still require that individual confidence to create my version of the 100% mentality or my right now focus or my robust confidence or whatever. So that, that, that helped me have a starting point and also allowed a bit of a value proposition to be developed. You know, what do you think if you were able to manage your thoughts and emotions from any position? What's the value of that? What would happen if you can't do that? So so that just allowed a little bit of a, a, a selling of those those things. And I've got to say, working with the, the rowing team, very bright individuals reading around loads of stuff for their in their own right anyway. So that kind of framework would have allowed them to pick stuff up and add to take it under their own steam as well um so that so that that you know there was some structure but always that freedom of can we understand you to then take control of that in the same way the physiologists do with a physiology you know what's my particular makeup of you know sort of muscle fiber types and that might indicate how i might need to have a training program blended to suit my particular sort of body just do the same thing so i you know i was just stealing from the other sort of people who did this stuff really well and could actually measure stuff uh, <laughs> and actually give some feedback to people say look we've made a difference well that's a good way to do it i mean it's it's interesting to listen to you talk about it because it reminds me a lot of the movement in clinical psychology right now which is away from 
you know, discrete diagnosis away from these like prepackaged kind of therapies, right? Which is sort of where sports psychology started. It was just an extension of cognitive behavioral therapy. Now you've got a real movement toward what people are calling process-based therapy and they're doing exactly what you're describing. It's like, what do we know are the core principles that help people improve? And it turns out there are a fundamental number of, you know, 15, 25, something like that principles that matter. Things like, you know, you mentioned thought control, right? But being able to reframe or challenge your cognitive distortions, exposure, being able to do, you know, move toward things that you typically avoid, right? All of these things, emotion regulation, regardless of how you package them or frame them, do matter to being a high-performing individual. And so you mentioned three things at the start, at least that I heard. I heard the robust confidence, I heard the right now, and then I heard the 100% mentality, and those all resonate for me and are very similar to the way I think about my work. Are there other core principles beyond those three that are really important to you? Well, so um, for want of a better phrase, I had another characteristic was exploit your support team. So from an athlete perspective, who else is around you whose job it is to help make you better? Because if you're really good at collaborating with them, supporting and challenging them so they grow and you grow in the same way, the best athletes that I saw were really good at kind of um, bringing a lot to the party, but expecting a lot of the party as well. Um, so, so I, I think there's something in that, just in terms of that that psychological strength of character to be vulnerable enough to know you, you know, you shouldn't just try and do it on your own, to be, but to be strong enough to know that your own way that you've got to is, is got some value to it as well. So those that component as well, I think, was particularly valuable. And I and I did have another component in there that kind of spoke to to purpose and it would allow me to kind of connect with you know to join the dots within these things from a self-determination theory perspective if I've got confidence and I can control my thoughts and emotions so I've got you know I've, I've got a high degree of autonomy I've got a high degree of kind of mastery but then what am I connected to what's where's there a purpose so you know actually from an athlete perspective find some meaning either to the group or the bigger picture or, or what's your story and the mission that you're on and how does that fit in with the story that other people are on so there can be a sense of togetherness that, that, that's in the mix there as well so I tried to I had that one in there just as a kind of a, a foundational principle of don't forget why you're doing this why is it important to you um, because there, there was a lot for me as well that you know if if from a paradox perspective, if you can treat the Olympics as the most important thing in the world, whilst, whilst knowing that it is really just meaningless playing of games, that was also a very healthy balance to have. And some of the purpose would be, well, you know, I actually love doing this thing. And there's an intrinsic delight in, you know, what I do from a performance perspective, as well as having a high degree of kind of reward, whatever that might be, that comes from the level of prowess that I've developed. I really love the last point that you're bringing up too. And it's something I, I wrestle with a lot in, in my work is how do you help people both recognize and appreciate the significance of each individual game and also recognize that we're basically just playing 82 games, right? Like it's just a game. And, and how do you hold that in mind? And it does create a little bit of a healthier perspective. It does allow people to kind of move more freely in their space, let things go more easily, tap into what they really like and care about and almost like, why they got into, in my case now, basketball, but why you got into sport in the first place yep. gets lost so quickly under the pressure of, well, you've got to be ready and locked in for the playoffs or you've got one chance and 
the Olympics every four years to, to hit a home run. And um, that's both a blessing and a curse, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 and also, you know, from a, um, from an intervention perspective, particularly with the confidence, but also potentially managing that sort of possible pressure. Um, I, I always like the, the stuff from logotherapy of paradoxical intention. You know, at any point in time, you can choose to be the worst performer anyone has ever seen. It might not be great from a career longevity point of view, but, you know, which, which version of you do you fancy being today? Uh, and, and remembering there is a choice. You're, you're choosing to find out how good you can be. There is no demand for you to demonstrate flawless performance. There, you know, there may feel a cost to your identity of not being quite the performer that you think you want to be or, or expect other people for you to be. However, make a choice. What's the choice you're making in terms of, you know, what you want to find out about yourself, which is also why probably from 2012, 2013 onwards, challenge mindset and helping people step into that space of, you know, approach goals, you know, imagine you weren't at the Olympics, there'd be some stuff you're not going to get to find out about yourself. So while you are here now, what do you want to find out about yourself in the Olympic final? Because we know what you want the medal to be that you win. That's not a differentiator. But there is an opportunity here to kind of bring to life a body of work that is now you've got the, the chance to answer some questions that you would really like to answer. Um, so what, do, what are those questions that you'd like to know you gave yourself the chance of answering with greatest conviction during the course of this Olympic campaign or this particular final um, so that that a lot of the framing of that was important for me and yes using all of the incredibly precise data and intelligence that have been gathered from previous performances that's that all of the evidence says you could be this good but if we just focus on that we might miss some of the freedom that will actually unlock the delivery of that quality in the moments of greatest meaning. What a powerful way to think about the opportunity that you have on a big stage, right? To, to express that freedom and learn something about yourself instead of focusing solely on the outcome. It's, it's awesome to listen to you kind of think and talk through this because a lot of it resonates for me personally and the way I've, I've started to appreciate this challenge mindset differently, or even think about, you know, like fixed mindset as something that's important for people actually to have. Um, and I know you and I share some somewhat contrarian points of view to, to sports psychology. I'd love, you know, when we were talking beforehand, you mentioned that your research was about adherence to psychological skills. Yeah. Um, and I think as I'm listening to you now talk about the core principles of what you do, I can see how a focus on those principles and flexibility with how you get there might lend itself to a different level of service provision and doing the work than it would be to stay focused solely on a specific skill. And so I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that connection and then also what you found in your research. Yeah, yeah. So um, so my, my PhD supervisor, Steve Bull, kind of originated that work back in sort of the 1980s. You know, you think about the 1980s being characterized by exercise adherence and the work of Rod Dishman and colleagues in that area around kind of adherence to exercise. You then look at kind of medication compliance and adherence to exercise as therapy and the low levels of compliance and adherence that takes place even when people are having medication that will keep them alive. You know, it, it, it's pretty clear that as humans, we're not great at adhering to routine. 
So Steve decided to research the extent to which athletes adhere to psychological training, mental rehearsal, whether it be self-talk, whether it be some concentration training, you know, and, and his initial findings were that, that adherence levels weren't great. Uh, people would rather go and physically practice. People would rather pick up a new, you know, a new pair of sneakers and put them on and go, this has made a difference. You know, I, I can jump higher, whatever it might be. You know, there, there's all of the stuff that we try to short circuit through equipment at increasing confidence. Um, having worked in sort of, you know, cricket in this country, having worked in golf, you know, same, same with baseball, people are always looking for that connection with the equipment to be the final bit that sort of, you know, creates the jigsaw. So, you know, my, my research just extended that and, and saw that, you know, actually from a perception perspective, you know, um, people saw the value of it, but didn't necessarily follow that through with a behavior that would be commensurate with it. Um, if you intervene and you sort of provide people with sort of, you know, more support generally they will do it more but left to their own devices they're less likely to sort of structure it structure it through so for me a lot of the findings were we need to embed it into the existing training rather than giving additional training rather than having another thing on the training program that is psychology we need to find a way of bringing it into um, strength and conditioning sessions bringing it into technical practice sessions bringing it into all of the things that we do but having the opportunity to debrief and bring that agenda out, are we growing psychologically as well as physically, technically, et cetera, tactically, et cetera. And so that was the core principle for me that it was that if we can get it embedded in and we can couple the psychological practices with existing physical or technical practices, we're more likely to have um, growth in psychological intentional thinking I, I always used to talk about, you know, psychology is thinking about what you want to think about and then practicing thinking it, which is usually being done in, you know, in uh, sort of concert with other elements of performance. Um, so that, that concept of sitting down and mentally rehearsing is an attractive one and it's a nice addendum to training, but it wouldn't necessarily be ever a replacement for it. So, so I was much more interested in how can I get the rowers visualizing their rowing technique whilst watching the video playback that the coaches videoed let's get back inside the video and refeel it rather than sit down and do a independent mental rehearsal session so trying to use the existing tools very much influenced how i would sort of suggest people took the concepts of the mental skills and embedded them into practices that were every day yeah what i like about that is you're kind of leveraging the existing activities and just pushing them one step further toward the psychological enhancement. And, and I know one of the ways I tend to think about the work that we do is, you know, vi visualization, imagery, all that stuff, like you're saying, sort of like a fancy technique, right? It's a nice thing to think about. But in fact, I think that most of the things that we're leveraging are fairly simple things to do. It doesn't require some extensive training or really intensive practice. It, it just requires regular adherence yep. to these these really small things i'm curious what you think about that oh absolutely i you know i i, I don't think and, and you know i i haven't looked extensively but it um I, I would love to see some research papers that have evaluated the impact of imagery training on performance whilst also measuring the extent to which the imagery was adhered to because it's, it's impossible not to account for other training that was taking place. And, the you know, you've got to do a really sort of solid 
study that would isolate just a specific skill with no other practice and mental rehearsal and ensure that the mental rehearsal was adhered to 100% or everyone so that we could start assessing whether there is some kind of dose response on particular types of skill and, or, or motor movement. Um, given we are typically working in far more complex open environments where there's so many confounding variables, the best we can do is kind of say, this is a useful habit to get into. There's a bunch of other habits that if you're not doing them, they will sort of cause you far more concern. This is a useful habit to have in as part of the mix, but explore how it might add value. So yeah, you know, I, I do think there's the toolkit led by coaches and integrated by coaches is definitely the way forward to, to be curious about what additional value does it provide us rather than it being a, a foundation upon which everything has to sit. Psych does the polishing on top of, you know, great integrated programs of work that, that are a blend of physical, technical, mental all the time in terms of, you know, what coaches do on a day-to-day -day basis. They're constantly putting in place multifactorial development programs. But if it's not called out sometimes to the athletes, they don't appreciate the multiple ways in which the program is developing them and that that means actually under pressure. I can think X and Y, and I've developed some pretty robust thinking skills as well as some, you know, movement patterns, technical responses, tactical decision-making um, elements to my game as well. So it's, it's that kind of stuff that I think is really, we have to call it out sometimes to make the learning explicit and to make it more useful. And I think it makes, it, it does make it more useful, right? It highlights that the intentionality behind how we've designed something does often resonate a bit differently. And so when you think of like a, say a basketball practice or a football practice as, well, it's just like kind of going through the motions and it's physical training and that's it. It's like, well, maybe, but there's a lot of instruction. There's a lot of feedback. There's a lot of time on the sideline where you could be playing through the play in your head. There's these different ways that if you just identify those opportunities, sports like doesn't have to live in its own world as something that happens behind a closed door. It can live on the practice court, it can live in the film room, it can live after a game. And all of those things can be as or more impactful than yeah. the time spent one-on-one -on -one in an office the size of a closet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've, you've just taken me back sort of, you know, to undergraduate, early postgraduate time. You know, so, so uh, my supervisor, Steve, had done his master's in Queens, uh, uh, Ontario with John Albinson. John and Steve had written a book, and you know, the mental game plan version one but one of one of the bits of research that i know john had done i think he might have done it in concert with steve but it was it, it was about sport related thought and it's a fascinating area that i don't think has ever really been picked up and run with but you know what do athletes think about just when they're generally thinking about their sport when do they just kind of go off into functional daydreaming? When do they go off into some kind of critical evaluative re, you know, re analysis of what's just happened? You know, sport related thought, because that's the bit I, you know, I worry about sports psych. It's, it, it, there's almost this sense that, you know, the profession thinks that no one has ever had a functional thought about the psychology of their performance without the intervention of a professional. Um, and it's just like, no, 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 because there is bunch, there's a whole bunch of sport related thought going on there that is probably constructed incredibly well, but with some guidance and some questioning and some curiosity, maybe it can be used mindfully rather than mindlessly. And, and, and you know, and 
that's where I think there's some really interesting stuff about how do we harness the desire of the athlete and the coaches to be, they're investing so much thought in this stuff anyway. They don't need the permission of a psych to think about it. It's funny. We, we also share a little bit of concern about the, the valuing of sports psych or the way our field generally positions itself in, in these different spaces. And you're right. I mean, like I've had the opportunity now to, to be a part of some NFL programs and some really high level college programs and some NBA programs. I've never been around a coach that's thinking about the sport less than 15 hours a day. I mean, they're home with their family at dinner thinking about basketball or football. You know, they're away on the road thinking about basketball or football. It's not something that just goes off. And, you know, it's interesting hearing the sport related thought of it. I've been thinking about some of, you know, the, the players now, whether it's been in college or in professional sport. I mean, they all play video games related yeah. to their sport anyway. And you've got to think like, there's probably something to it, right? It may not be the best way to do it, but it's not like they're just passively not absorbing anything related to football, basketball, soccer, baseball, whatever. Like they're they're going through that in the same way that they, you know, start to think about it when they walk past the training facility or whatever it is. And so I think it's a really interesting dimension to sort of pull on and to value differently. Yeah, and and you know, you think back for how long sports psych principles have now been available and potentially embedded in sports, you know, going back a long time. And you know, there's been multiple books written. There are, you know, there's so much resource available that actually there can be a huge amount of development, you know, independent of working with a consultant. And I think we should be looking to find out you know, which stuff has been most powerful? What have you read? We should be assuming that sports psych has embedded its way in there. And the job of the consultant is to try and provide expert insight that will build upon that aggregated knowledge so far and make it fit for the reality of that culture, that moment, whatever's trying to be done there as well. And bring a bit of maybe art and innovation and creativity to it as well. But that that's where I think there's... Um, that there are so many great examples of coaches and athletes who are better psychologists than qualified psychologists. They're just not looking to go and make a living out of it. They're looking to, to promote their own living as a function of what they've learned and what they're applying. Sure. Well, and, and you know, there's some really interesting data now about even the expertise of athletes being more accurate than even expert coaches, right? And you I see these... about that the other day, and I thought, yeah, there's some interesting stuff in that. I just think that's fascinating because we, you know, we sort of assume, and it goes to the sports psychology conversation. We just sort of assume that the functional expert in every place has some like really unique value add that nobody else can have. And I think there's some truth to that. There's some value add from an you know objective observer perspective as a coach versus an athlete but there's also maybe needs to be a different level of respect for what the expert brings to the picture and so just like you're saying I, I don't necessarily want you know coaches to over index on being the guru and now talk about sports like all the time but yeah. to appreciate that they do have some expertise and they do have a different experience that I as a sports psychologist need to now layer on top of and bring my expertise to bear for that person. And this sort of mutual appreciation for everyone's individual expertise, I think is really powerful versus this space where like, well, you've got to just really own the technical tactical and I'll really own 
the mental and strength and conditioning will really own the physical. Like, it's just not going to work to get a high performance. Which is exactly the same way that we look to set sports teams up, where you don't, you know, there's obviously there's some sports where positions don't really kind of interplay. But in a lot of instances, we're all responsible for offense as well as defense. There are some people who are more responsible for some of the offense than they are the defense and vice versa, but we're all responsible for it. You know, we, we set teams up to be collaborative based upon the aggregation of strengths. So why wouldn't we do that in everything that surrounds the team as well and actually make it much more of a mission that, you know, how we are on the court reflects how we are around the court and off the court. And, you know, it's, 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 it's really buying into that culture rather than there being this separated thing of, you know, we're a certain way when we're playing the game and we're a certain way when we're preparing for it. I think there's principles that apply across all, you know, we're, we're in the competition of being the best culture that we can be as well as the best performers that we can be in, in you know, when, when it's competition time. So yeah, I, I totally agree. You know, that kind of dovetails beautiful. So we've got a couple minutes left. I'm going to ask one more sticky question that I'd love, love your opinion on. I'd love to know, you know, what's one thing that you've seen kind of sports psychology generally really value that you disagree about? Um, let's have a think. It, it, yeah, it's probably, probably um, a tricky one to bring one to the top of my mind at the moment. So um, I, I probably do think and 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 there's certainly differences US UK in terms of how things are set up and and you know it's even when we talk about sports psychology I don't think it's a single profession so that would probably be my answer the thing that sports psychology values that isn't really a thing is the fact that it's a profession it's it, it's actually um, uh, a community of people who have a fascination with a shared topic but approach it from very different ways and very different schools of thought. And even though we have a singular title, we have so many different subjective realities as to what this thing is. It's very difficult from a consumer point of view for those people who, you know, if sports psychology is a sport related thing, we've never made it easy for the consumers to understand exactly what it is and how to, and how to get the value from it. And I think there's a lot of the other sports sciences have done that a lot better by having a value proposition that the that sports coaches and athletes know, okay, this is what I'm getting and this is how I access it. And there's a, there's a point of similarity. With sports psychology, you pay your money, you take your choice as to you know who, who the particular practitioner is that you're working with. And that just makes it very difficult for a profession to advance and have a singular sense of value to the customer that it seeks to serve. So... Uh, possibly not the answer you expected but i thought i'd shoehorn it in there somewhere i i had no expectation of what the answer would be and um, i yeah i appreciate the perspective and, and it resonates for me too i mean i think as a field generally we we have spent a lot more time arguing with each other about who should do what and where things should live than we have promoting what we can do to the field and to, to the broader public and helping people understand. Or even asking them what they might think we do or what might be valuable for us to do for them. A hundred, a hundred percent. I mean, you know, you almost think about it like running a business or running a startup, right? You've got to solve a really painful problem. And if you can do that for a large enough number of people, you've got something that'll be pretty successful. But the businesses that fail are those that spend a bunch of time arguing amongst the founding team, you know, what's most important for us to be doing right now and who's most important. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's always been a deep irony to the observation that you know there there are there are lots of athletes and coaches who are very skeptical and cynical about sports psychology. If only there were a, a profession who understood how to change psychology to move away from cynicism and skepticism into acceptance. Uh, if only we had someone who could help us appeal to an audience of a particular mindset, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be helpful? Wow, that that would be something, Chris. This has been. Awesome. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find you and learn more about your work, whether that's social media or online? Uh, yeah. So if you go to uh, planetk2.com, that's the that's the business. And there are various sort of offshoots of planetk2.com, which are the main things to go to. The performanceroom.co.uk is where we've got a lot of content designed for any um, sort of uh, performer, whether you're in the workplace or the sports place. And then believeperform.com is where we've got a lot of the sports psych mental health offering for schools and students and coaches and athletes as well so uh, uh and then um i'm occasionally on twitter being um ironic hopefully um uh, at chris shambrook um on twitter as well so uh, uh, but yeah it's been a pleasure alex and, and a delight i love loving following all of your stuff on the social media as well keep that up because i think there's uh, it's it, the messages are getting through loud and clear to a lot of people well thank you i appreciate that and i appreciate you taking the time to join me this morning that's been wonderful thank you Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unfair Advantage podcast. You can learn more about the work we're doing helping high performers develop their own unfair advantage at our substack at unfairadv.substack.com.